This morning we are going to look into an understanding and interpretation in terms of the framework of the parables. The next Lord's Day we are going to look specifically at the parable of the sower. That's an example of that. Many ways this will dovetail our last our series on 2 Timothy 3.16, in which we also looked at principles of interpretation in that and also principles of application concerning the word of God. I want to begin this morning, maybe it will seem odd and hopefully it will become very apparent that we're going to begin with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you would, turn over to Christ's explanation of why he speaks in parables in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. Listen to the holy, infallible word of the Lord. Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For, the, for to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart have been grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people Long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Let's pray.
Our Lord and our God, we ask by thy spirit that our eyes would be open to see, our ears would be open to hear, and our hearts would be open to understand. Bless each of us this morning in the gospel of the living Christ. In Christ's name, amen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. John Lennon's song, Imagine. Now, troubles are many. They are as deep as a well. I can swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. But I'll never know by living, only by dying will tell. Blood, sweat, and tears, the song, and when I die. But tell me, did you sail across the sun? Did you make it to the Milky Way to see the lights all faded and that heaven is overrated? Train, the song drops of Jupiter. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not surprising that pop culture has no respect or reverence for heaven or for hell. After all, pop culture is controlled by living in the moment, a consciousness of immediate gratification a life that bows before its sole ultimate authority. That sole ultimate authority is me, is I. A world in which no one is responsible or accountable to any spiritual being outside their own sensual material universe. Yes, the anti-Christian lifestyle of pop culture is expected to raise its voice against the triune God of heaven and earth as the culture energetically worships the creature rather than the creator. But that, if that is expected in the world of unbelief, How do we evaluate the increasing attack upon the orthodox belief of heaven from theological liberals as well as a rising tide within the present Reformed 
an evangelical world. A vital cry is being sounded within the vast doors of the church. Heaven is not my home. This is a title of a book by an author who claims to be reformed, claims to be in the Calvinistic tradition. I ask you, what do you think? Is that biblical? Is that orthodox? Is that your position? Heaven is not our future. This was a title of a sermon by a visiting Reformed and Calvinistic minister in a PCA church in St. Louis a few years ago. What do you think? Is that Reformed? Is that Orthodox? Is that your position? So what is this specific attack upon heaven these days? Well, Reformed and evangelical theologians, ministers, and educators are attacking the traditional Orthodox view of heaven as a distinct, separate, transcendent place of destination that is beyond, beyond our present creation, beyond our present world and universe as we see and experience it. Why is this attack upon that historic understanding of heaven taking place? Why is it occurring? There are many reasons for this. But let me highlight just three prominent reasons from my intense study of this issue for 40 years. First of all, first of all, since the 18th century French Enlightenment, there has been a steady and increasing movement among Christians, including liberal thought, evangelical and reformed thought to understand our final destination, the final destination of Christians and the church, not to be a distinct place beyond the present creation. Rather, the new heaven and the new earth, the final destination of Christ's people, is a renewed earth right here in the present creation. Specifically, the future site of heaven is not beyond the earth. Kent, Washington, Lake Washington, the Cascades Mountains, all of them as you see them right now will be part of the new heaven and the new earth. So we are told. Secondly, since the earth as we see it is our final home, our final heaven, then anyone who holds to, the fi- to a final transcendent 
and distinct heaven is viewed as an escapist. As an escapist. What does this mean? It means that such Christians are accused of escaping from their cultural responsibility and activity of changing, transforming, and reclaiming the culture for Christ and the Christian faith. I have come to believe over the years that the accusation of escapism directed at the Christian world is a smokescreen. After all, after all, and probably many of you receive it by email or in the mail each day, there are an abundance of Christian organizations and think tanks that are involved in the cultural, social, political world. In the big picture, I cannot point to any item of all those organizations. I cannot point to any item of Orthodox Christianity having an effect of changing the culture. If you know one, tell me. Christian cultural activism among American Christians in most cases will either line up behind one's own personal sympathies for the Democratic Party or for the Republican Party. Or, while Christians who are independents will lean towards one party or the other depending on the issue they're trying to address. Thirdly, as to why there's no distinct place of the final heaven being taught by many today. In this cultural, social, political blend between culture and earth and heaven, culture and the creation and heaven are moving in history to one single entity. The term that you will see constantly in the literature is this. We must believe in terms of the final, final destination of all Christians. We must believe in monism. All earth and heaven is blended as one. Monism. That's what's going on. Earth, culture will eventually be transformed into heaven, so they say, and heaven will be transformed into earth and culture. Hence, we are being told that a distinct, transcendent realm of heavenly glory is not our home. It's not our future to repeat your home, your future home, will be an earthly heaven. O church of Jesus Christ, how far removed 
and distant. Many of these so-called cultural Christians, as liberals as well as evangelicals and Calvinists, how far they have come, become distant from John Calvin's golden words and his grasp of the believer's pilgrimage in redemptive history. I want you to think about that. I want you to try to grasp that. This is a man who wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible, and I mean full, full expository commentaries on every book of the Bible except Revelation, and that's another story of one day. But nevertheless, Calvin himself is immersed in the revelation of God. And he gives us these golden words to you. I plead with you. I plead with you to listen. They're on your outline. I even plead with you to have your children memorize this golden phrase in the Institutes. If heaven is our homeland. What else is the earth but our place of exile? That's a man who understood biblical revelation from Genesis through the book of Revelation. More importantly, how far removed and distant is this new secular, temporal, and provisional religion from the supernatural religion of the Bible? How do we know this? Well, let us begin where the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1. God provides insight into the supernatural religion of his sovereign revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Indeed, we see here a summary statement of the comprehensive creational activity of our God. God created all things good. God is independent of the creation as the creation is totally dependent upon him. God created the world out of nothing. Creation is the result of the masterful genius of God's knowledge and his wisdom. But, and here is my point and question, is this verse merely descriptive? Meaning that this verse merely is, is merely a description about the comprehensive creative activity of God. Are we merely to pick up upon various attributes and characteristics of God from this verse? You see, in the history of the church, the church has presented another profound teaching 
on the basis of this verse in Genesis 1-1 that receives very little attention. You say it time and time again, but we seldom, if ever, pause and give close attention. Listen from the Apostles' Creed. God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. Westminster Confession 4.1 It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the, of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein visible or invisible in the space of six days and all very good. Besides the sovereign creative work of our God, what do you hear consistently in these three statements? You hear the term heaven and earth, you hear the terms invisible and visible. As our creeds and confessions make these statements, they do not elaborate much upon them. In view of the invasion of cultural Christianity into the church, we need to reflect upon Genesis 1-1 as our creeds and confessions provide an interpretation of that text. O saints at Emmanuel OPC, Genesis 1-1 proclaims more, more, than a comprehensive summary of God's creative hand and the clear implication of our sovereign God's attributes. Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the Bible, is also unfolding the sequence of God's creative activity which is absolutely imperative in understanding the essential nature and pattern of God's revelation in time and space in history. Don't miss the sequence of this verse. God, heaven, earth. God, invisible, visible. This pattern is so crucial that the church, you, will not understand God's revelation unless you follow this pattern. 
the sequence of God's revelatory activity of creation is being disclosed here. It's from God. Creation of the heavens. Creation of the earth. And then humans as image of God are upon the earth. We must return from the earth to heaven and to God in our confrontation and understanding of God's revelation. Don't miss this. You will absolutely have to follow this pattern if you are going to understand and interpret correctly God's revelation. Even as it is found in his written word revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Simply stated, this sequence also serves as a principle of interpreting the Bible. We call that, theologians call that the discipline of hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible. And if you do not follow this pattern, don't be surprised. Those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Matthew 13, 13. So I'm going to ask you this morning. How is your reading of the Bible lately? How is your interpretation of the Bible coming along lately? I'm challenging you on the basis of the series that we had in 2 Timothy 3.16. Maybe some of us will have to go back and review some of that. But I'm challenging you this morning. We are a church that wonderfully, just absolutely wonderfully, I have been so impressed in terms of the desire of the instruction of God's word, the various Bible studies. We are about to start our Sunday school program. We ourselves have parents in yourselves, in your daily devotions and in the instruction of your children. I plead with you to listen and perhaps review. We're building, we're building upon Lois and Eunice this morning. As you prepare your Sunday school lessons, your Bible studies, as you prepare your own daily instruction in the word of God, I plead with you to listen 
concerning what is happening in application of Genesis 1-1. The pattern is imperative. The pattern is absolutely imperative in understanding Christ's parables. The parables are given by the final anointed king, the final Christ, as the vehicle to communicate the nature of the revelation of his own identity and his kingdom. These parables reveal the message of final blessing and final judgment upon its hearers. As you look closely at Matthew 13, 10 through 17, the parables, note this please, because everybody almost in the world makes this mistake. Please, the parables are not simplistic earthly stories and illustrations in the everyday language of the people so Jesus could communicate the gospel in an easier manner. Don't make the gospel too complicated. Jesus used good earthly language in the parables to communicate to people. Are you reading 10 through 17? Do those people read it? I can't count the number of times I've heard that in my lifetime as an explanation of Jesus' down-to-earth ministry. He preaches in parables so they won't understand. And I defy any of you to show me that I'm wrong on the basis of 10 through 17. No. Even the disciples listened to the parable of the sower and had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They were completely lost. So they asked, why do you speak in parables? Christ's quotation from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 brings to bear the full revelation of the final judgment upon Israel that the inheritance of the gospel is moving to Christ's disciples and the Gentiles, the new Israel. What is it that Israel did not hear or understand? They did not see, hear, or understand the very fabric of revelation, that every revelatory event, that every revelatory institution is pointing the believer to heaven and to the Christ of God. The pattern in Genesis 1-1 is woven into each parable. Earth. Heaven, God. But do not be misled or deceived. Christ does not begin with the earth. 
That is where Israel starts. That is where modern cultural Christians start. Christ begins with God. True to the pattern of Genesis 1-1, a correct interpretation of the parables, and for that matter, the whole scripture comes from God himself. Because it is the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The invisible has been given to you, the disciples, not to them, the Jewish crowd. Matthew 13, 16. The connection that I am making is this. The biblical revelatory pattern of interpretation. Earth. Heaven. God is absolutely meaningless. Unless God enlightens us. To understand the substance. The content. And truth within that pattern. Simply put. True biblical interpretation interpretation comes to each of us as gift. As gift. The pattern of the gift is condescension from God. Remember Genesis 1.1. From God through heavenly meaning to the earth. Clearly the pattern in the parables. Only by starting with the gift. Only by starting with God and moving through heaven. The invisible to ourselves. The visible. Will we understand the full orb spectrum of God's revelation. You see congregation. This is another reason why Christ is at the heart of biblical revelation and all God's activity in the history of redemption. Do you recognize? Do you recognize the pattern in Genesis 1-1? It's gospel. The gospel is in Genesis 1-1. Have you ever read the gospel in Genesis 1-1? Do you recognize The pattern as an application to your everyday reading and interpreting the Bible. Did not our Savior, the Holy Son of God, condescend as God himself from where heaven, the invisible, into the creation? The visible as the heavenly Father's gift to all of us as sinners. In the condescension of Christ as the word of God is the pattern for our interpretation of the inscripturated word of God. But wait a second, wait a second. Did not Christ come into the world, die for sinners, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven, sitting at the right hand of his heavenly Father? Of course he did. In the same pattern as the revelation of Christ is 
ours. It is yours. Now we, through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, which comes upon each one of us as gift, read, interpret, and understand the word of God by moving ourselves from earth, the visible, to heaven, the invisible. To God himself. Is that your exercise? Are you putting that into practice? When you read your Bible? Are you connecting the dots? Do you see why the Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles could not see hear and understand why they why do they reject the Christ because they began with the earth and not the gift of our heavenly triune God In fact, by starting with the earth, they can never move beyond an earthly view of Jesus' identity and his proclaimed kingdom. Furthermore, many Calvinists and evangelicals are exposing similar vibrations. They seem determined to begin with the earth in order to establish an earthly cultural kingdom of heaven on the basis of their own agenda, an agenda in my estimation that is secular, temporal, and provisional. It's only temporary. In fact, and this is what is astounding to me in all the literature that I have read over the years from this paradigm, from these people. In their literature, you will find little, little about Christ and his present heavenly residence at the Father's right hand. After all, after all, They have become skeptical and apathetic about the transcendent biblical view of heaven. Congregation, let us, let us as the people of God not forsake the biblical view of heaven for the sake of a cultural view of heaven on earth. Certainly, let us not blaspheme the present station of Christ in the heavenly places by swearing that there is no heaven and praying that there is no hell.
Will you not confess? Will you not confess this morning with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, in compliance with biblical revelation, that heaven, heaven is your home. That heaven is a treasured possession in your life. That God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the true inheritance of your person, your being. That heaven is your future. But also that you, yes, you, you have heard this time and time again. Make sure it has meaning this morning from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that you, you sit presently in faith union with Christ in the heavenly places. You're there. Ephesians 1, 3 and 2, 6. If you do, then you know that heaven, as the residence of our God's glory, is not, is not overrated. Congregation, our critics are upon us. I've been told this many times in my own life, even within the confines of the church. You are so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. But maybe the critics of true biblical revelation should hear this. You are so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good. Congregation, the pattern is set. It's all gospel in Genesis one, one. God, heaven, earth. God comes as gift, brings us, earth, to heaven, to the inheritance of God. That's the revelation of God from the beginning until Christ comes again for you, the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
our Lord and our God, we would ask your mercy and your grace that we would see the wonderful, the wonderful paradigm that comes to us in Genesis 1-1 that enables us to understand, to hear, to see the gospel in its full-orbed revelation to each of us. Bless each of us. Bless our homes. Help us, O Lord, to see that our final abidance is with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever in the heavenly places that thou hast provided distinctly for us. In Christ's name, amen.